Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps up on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Good morning. In honor of Father's Day, I thought I'd read a little story. Can't read a story without a blanket. The pictures were drawn by my girls for our, for our story. I don't know if you can see up there, mountains, city of gold, pearly gate, and the dragon carrying off someone. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a king and his son. This father and son loved each other so much. Their love was so wonderful and life-giving and creative and glorious that they wanted to share their love with others. Now, the father was a creator of good things, and so he decided to make a beautiful bride to marry his son so that his son could share his love with someone special. The father made a young woman, beautiful and innocent, powerful and creative. She was made to be a suitable partner for the prince. Before the wedding, the king made a beautiful city for the prince and his bride to live in and rule over after they were married and began preparing it for them. The king walked with the woman and began to teach her all the things she needed to know to become the perfect bride for the prince. She learned to care for the earth. She learned to make decisions for the city. She learned to listen to the king. The only thing that the king did not teach her was how to do evil, for the king did not know how to do evil. She loved walking with the king and grew more and more excited and ready to marry the prince. However, one of the king's most powerful servants, a mighty sorcerer, did not want the woman to marry the prince. Instead, he wanted the woman for himself. He came up with a plan to take the woman. The sorcerer knew that if he kidnapped her, the king was too powerful and would take the sorcerer's powers, destroy him, and take the woman back for the prince. But the sorcerer was very clever. He realized that if the woman chose to come with him, then the king would let her go because of his great love for her. And so the sorcerer turned himself into a beautiful butterfly. He came to the woman and said, Woman, 
I know that you love the king and the prince, but see, I am beautiful. I am more beautiful than all the creatures on the earth. Will you come with me and say goodbye to the king and the prince? The woman said to the butterfly, I see that you are very beautiful, but you are not so beautiful as the king or the prince. I love them and they love me. I will not go with you. A second time the sorcerer came to the woman, this time as a mighty lion. He said to her, woman, I know that you love the king and the prince, but see, I am powerful. I am more powerful than all the creatures of the earth. Will you come with me and say goodbye to the king and the prince? The woman said to the lion, I know that you are very powerful, but you are not so powerful as the king or the prince. I love them and they love me. I will not go with you. Again, the sorcerer came to the woman, this time as a serpent. He said to the woman, woman, I know that you love the king and the prince. And I know that the king has taught you all that you need to know to rule with the prince. But one thing the king has not taught you, to do evil. If you will come with me, I will teach you about evil, and you will be as mighty as the king. The woman knew that the king had never taught her to do evil. For the first time, she wondered whether the king was hiding from her. Perhaps she needed to understand evil. She decided to go with the serpent. The sorcerer grew into a powerful dragon and carried the woman away with him to the city that the king had made for the prince and his bride. The woman grew ugly and evil, more and more like the sorcerer dragon. She did not love the sorcerer, and she knew that he did not love her, but she followed him and learned to do evil. The sorcerer ruled over the city and began to destroy it by making it ugly and evil. He kept the woman for himself and looked for ways to keep the king and the prince out of the city and away from the woman. Now, if you're like me, you like stories. I like stories so much that I decided to write one for this morning just for no reason. But stories move and shape us. They get at us in a way that sometimes like reasonable things don't always. And if you're like me, you want a satisfying ending to the story. And so that is either a really unsatisfying story or I haven't read the ending yet. This summer, we're going to read the ending of the story. We're going to read and study Revelation together. And it's a real gift to be able to do that as a community together. Revelation is the ending of the story. And it's a very satisfying ending. It's the ending not only of the Bible. It's the last of the 66 books of the Bible. It's also the end of the story of human history. It's the end of everything that God made. It's the, all, all of his purposes coming to fruition, coming true. But Revelation isn't just the end of the story. It's also meant to encourage us and help us to live now in wise, righteous, godly ways. So, welcome this morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. I always am aware of how inadequate I am when I preach. When it comes to Revelation, I'm extra aware of how inadequate any of us are. So I would appreciate your prayers both for me and for all of our teachers this summer. We have given them a task that maybe we should not envy, but be praying for us all. And now is probably an appropriate time to pray for this sermon. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you created us. We thank you that you created us with purpose, and despite our sin and our rejection of you and our choosing of the sorcerer serpent, you are going to see your purposes fulfilled in creation. You're not done with us just because we sin. 
We thank you that despite our ugliness and evil, you have the power and the will to make things right. And so we thank you and praise you. Thank you especially for sending your son to us. By his death and resurrection and ascension, we are made new and we have life with you. So we thank you. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit who is in process of reshaping us and making us new. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you this morning. We ask that you would be with us, that you would continue to guide our our service of worship. And would you, this morning, take the scriptures and continue the process of remaking us by your Spirit. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple of notes about what Revelation is. Revelation, number one, is about Jesus. That's what it is. John tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this is. And then at the end, chapter 22, let me get there, last couple of verses. He says, surely I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking. And then we say, amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all of you. Amen. And then there are these great visions throughout the book. Chapter 1 that we're going to look at next week. Chapter 5, chapter 12, chapter 14, chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21 and 22. These are great visions of Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. He's the one who drives the action. He's the one who's in charge of everything that happens. He leads the way for his people. He defeats evil. He receives worship. He is our final purpose and our faithful bridegroom. Everything centers on, revolves around, and points to Jesus. So then, what are some big things that Revelation tells us about Jesus? Well, first, and this will, we'll get to this next week. This is the key image for next week. He is the commander of God's armies and the most powerful person in the universe. Revelation is a war book. It's a book about the war in heaven between God and the armies of evil. And Jesus is the commander of the most powerful army in human history. Revelation is a war book and Christ is the victor in the war. There are two battles that end evil forever. Chapters 19 and 20, two battles. These are so unspectacular battles that... John devotes a total, two battles, a total of four verses to describing these battles. They're not great battles. They're not really even battles. They're just Jesus pronouncing judgment on evil and it going away. Jesus is so powerful, he doesn't even have to fight the battles that end history. So first, he's the commander of God's armies, the most powerful person in the universe. Second, and this is the central image for the book of Revelation. He is the lamb who was slain. The one whose death and resurrection defeats the powers of sin and death and evil forever. Going back to number one, he's the most powerful person in the universe. Do you know why he's so powerful? Because he died on the cross for us and God raised him from the dead. His death is the most powerful weapon that creation has ever seen. His death on the cross defeats all enemies, all comers. We, we work so hard to use violence to defeat our enemies, and Jesus takes violence on himself and defeats all enemies. So first, he's the commander of God's armies, most powerful person. Second, he's the lamb who was slain. Third, 
There's a, there's a whole bunch of other things I could say. I'm going to end with this one, but there's a whole bunch of things we could say about Jesus. But third, he's the bridegroom of the church. The one for whom we were created, the reason for all of creation. Everything that exists has its purpose in Jesus. As Paul tells us in Colossians 1, all things were created through him and for him. All scripture, all creation points to Jesus because the whole thing is about him. So, Revelation is about Jesus. It's also for and about us. John, the writer of Revelation, intends Revelation to inspire the church to follow after Jesus. John describes the church in a whole bunch of different ways. They're overcomers, victors, lamb's army, lamb's bride, new Jerusalem, priests, the great multitude, the temple of God. I like the phrase faithful witnesses because it captures both how we're meant to operate in the world and how we're meant to operate in relationship to Jesus. God made us faithful to Jesus and to bear witness to him. He calls us to faithfully follow Jesus, to worship him alone and not worship others and to love him above all others. He calls us also to look like Jesus, to let our lives tell others what Jesus is like. So if he's our commander, then we're to follow him as his army. If he's the lamb who was slain, then we're called to be faithful all the way to the point of death, if that's what he calls us to, like he was. If he's our bridegroom, we're called to be his faithful bride, not committing adultery with the beasts and the powers of the world. So we have two main goals as we go through Revelation this summer. First, that we see Jesus. And we have the opportunity to worship him for who he is. Just as Adrienne led us in worship this morning, Christ-centered worship. I don't know if you noticed, but we got an amazing amount of Jesus' story this morning in our worship. From his coming as the word and light, all the way through his death, paying for our sin, to his resurrection, defeating death, to his ascension, where he rules now as king, now at the Father's right hand, receiving the worship that the Father himself receives. And I don't need, you, I don't need to tell you this, but Adrienne has done an amazing job over 20 years caring for our souls by leading us to worship the triune God. I'm going to, as a son-in-law, I get to do this. So, sorry. But she's been amazing at God-centered, theologically and emotionally rich worship. Beautifully constructed worship services. The matrix, matrix of things that she holds together every week is absolutely stunning, incredible. And these are the ones that I know about. There are more that I don't. She thinks about the emotional impact of the songs, the musicality of the songs, the community's response, theological depth. As you notice, we had responsive readings the flow of the service, where you and I sit or stand, the way she prays, all while listening to the Spirit's leading and leaving space for the Spirit to continue leading. All of this points to a powerful time of worship that points us to Jesus and gives Him glory. I know about that stuff because before we moved back to Boise, I was a worship coordinator and I had no idea what I was doing. So I actually relied pretty heavily on Adrienne. She would feed me books and songs and uh, give me encouragement regularly. And I led, you know, once every six to eight weeks. She has been the most consistent, 
face up here for the last 20 years. She's been up here more than anyone else over the last 20 years. We have been blessed as a community. And then the choir, I don't know if you know this, but the choir is one of the most amazing community in this church. Like, it's just an amazing group of people led by, again, led by Adrienne. Um, Grace and I actually got back together. We had dated in high school, but we got back together over Christmas choir while we were in college. So the choir is obviously very meaningful to me, which is why I couldn't stay away for this last choir under, under your leading. So we have been really blessed by your leadership. And as a community, we're really grateful for you. So may the Lord bless your retirement with rich times of worship, with continuing impact, intimate adventures with Mark, and a deepening walk with God, it's God himself. So thank you. We're very grateful. And as her son-in-law, I'll be um, grateful for extra babysitting opportunities. Friday, Friday nights are available now. Excellent. Thank you. Back to our goals for our study. First, we want to see Jesus and worship him, which again, Adrienne has helped us to do so well. Second, we want to ask how Revelation disciples us, how it trains and shapes us, how it makes us better followers of Jesus. So every week, those are the questions we want to ask. Where is Jesus and how are we learning to follow him better? How can we be more like him? Before we get too deep into that, what kind of book is Revelation? How is it accomplishing these purposes, pointing us to Jesus and helping to train and disciple us? Okay, I'm going to use a couple big, well, one particularly big word. Revelation is an apocalyptic, prophetic letter. Apocalyptic means unveiling or revelation. Something being revealed that wasn't previously revealed. That's what apocalypse or apocalyptic means. So it pulls back the veil between earth and heaven and reveals something about what's happening behind the scenes. To do that, apocalyptic literature, this is a genre of literature, especially in the uh, Jewish and Christian writings uh, of this era, To do that, apocalyptic literature uses lots of symbols, really bizarre images. So, like, numbers in Revelation are all symbolic. They might also have other meaning, but they all have symbolic meaning. The images, as you know, are weird. Like, Jesus is a slain lamb. I mean, we kind of, we get what that means, but to actually try and picture what that is, a lamb standing as though slain, you're like, I don't know what that means. There's beasts and dragons and uh, people as brides and big armies and all kinds of strange stuff in this book. The reason for that is that apocalyptic is not aiming at our heads so that we can like comprehend everything. It's aiming at our hearts and our imaginations. It's aiming at our hearts through our imaginations, maybe. So... Part of what it's trying to do is disciple our imaginations so that it gets at our hearts. So part of our job this summer is to allow it to shape our imaginations so that our hearts can be retrained. Let Revelation make us more able to picture unseen realities behind our normal experiences. Okay, so it's apocalyptic. 
It's also prophetic. Revelation is prophecy. Usually when we think of prophecy, we think of future. But that's not actually what biblical prophecy necessarily means. Biblical prophecy just refers to God speaking to us. Sometimes he speaks about the future. But sometimes he just speaks encouragement to us. And sometimes actually he speaks about the past. In fact, the the first book of biblical prophecy in the Hebrew tradition is the book of Joshua of all books. You don't, we don't normally think of that as a prophetic book, but scripturally, that's the first of the prophets. So in Revelation, God is giving his people a picture of reality, the reality that's happening now in heaven and in the future in order to encourage them to remain faithful to him while they struggle to live in a culture that invites them to reject him. John wrote to people tempted to uh, compromise with the Roman Empire instead of following Jesus in the same ways that we're tempted to follow our consumerist, materialist, self-serving, violent, death-dealing culture. This is prophecy to us. This is God's word to us now. Finally, so it's apocalyptic and prophetic. Finally, it's a letter. It's a letter to seven specific churches. Now, I just said that all numbers are symbolic, and that's true. John is writing to seven churches. Seven in, in Revelation always means complete, whole, somehow. So we can see this in various different ways. One is he's writing to the whole church. He's also writing, some people think he's also, he may be writing to seven different ages of the church. But he's at least writing to seven specific churches that he knew that dealt with specific problems. He's not writing for us so that we can know the future. That's not his intended purpose. He's writing to seven churches who are dealing with specific problems. The big questions that these churches are facing, I'm going to list four. We could list more. One of the big ones, should we compromise with the Romans or not? How do we relate to the world? How can the kingdom of God advance when Rome is so powerful? So one deals with Rome. Two, a second major question. How do we deal with suffering? And is it really worth it to suffer for Jesus? Like the dude died. Is it worth it to suffer for him? Three, is Jesus really Lord? If so, why is evil doing so well? So, should we compromise with Rome? How do we deal with suffering? Is Jesus Lord? Last one. John is writing this in the time when he's the last of the apostles left. All the apostles have died off. So, is Jesus still coming back? Why is he waiting so long to come back? The expectation of the early church was that this would happen quickly. He'd be back real quick. It's taken a long time. Why is he waiting so long? That, those are the questions that John is writing to, and he will answer in our study of Revelation. Real quickly, Revelation is really hard to interpret. If you got 25 different commentaries and read through them all, you go, okay, I have no idea. They all disagree with one another all the time. So you and I will probably disagree this summer. The different preachers who will be preaching up here will probably disagree with one another. That's okay. We have seven wonderful preachers this summer. I get to teach a bunch of times. 
And then Jackson and Rod will each teach once. Hernan, Doug Gamble, Marianne, one of our women's pastors, and Larry Tingler. So seven of us total will be preaching this summer. We're not going to agree all the time. I've done my very best to indoctrinate and brainwash all of them. Um, and I will do my very best to indoctrinate and brainwash you as well, if you'll let me. Um, several different ways that I want to try and brainwash you. One, every week there will be booklets. I'm writing a book on Revelation. There will be booklets uh, available to you. So this week there are seven times seven booklets. There are 49 booklets on the back table. Seven times seven magic numbers. Um, they're on the back table next to the sound booth. These booklets will follow the week of the preaching. So if you go back there right now, you'll get an introduction and the beginning of chapter one. So my writing on, on Revelation. So read the booklets and be brainwashed. Number two, we want to give you something like uh, uh, questions uh, to, to wrestle with, like the growth groups do, wrestling with the questions the week after the sermon. So back where, back in the back wall there under the, under the information, there is a set of questions for like growth in, in the growth group guide little folder there. You can grab a set of questions. The goal is to help you think through the stuff that we've been studying. And another way that I'm trying to indoctrinate you is uh, I'd love to do question and answer time throughout the summer after second service when we get a chance. This week, we're not going to get a chance. We have something uh, minor happening after the service. But next week, uh, my goal is to be in the fireside room after the service, after second service. If you'd like to come, write down your questions. I'd love to wrestle through, through things with you. This is a difficult text. We're going to disagree. When you ask questions, most of the time my answer will be, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. When we disagree, though, we can disagree in grace and love, right? In fact, that's a theme of Revelation. We don't often think of that, but that's one of the big themes of Revelation is that God is loving and gracious. I'm not going to get into it now, but God, God's love is revealed in all kinds of really powerful ways in this book. So if God can be gracious to us, then we can learn and make an attempt, at least, to be gracious and loving to one another. I'll do my best. And yes, I'm asking something self-serving. Please be gracious with me. We will disagree, but let's spend our summer listening to what God has for us. So real quickly on the story of Revelation. I started with a fairy tale because it seems like all fairy tales are modeled on this story. I don't know if you've thought of it that way before. But every great fairy tale is modeled on the greatest story. And this is the greatest one. It starts when the princess is captured by the evil dragon in the garden. But he's a wily dragon. She chose her captivity. We chose sin. So, since God created her, he's not going to allow his purposes for creation to be destroyed. So, God is going to invade the dragon's stronghold. God will see his purposes for creation through. It's a two-stage invasion. First, the prince comes to start to win back the inhabitants of the city and to convince his bride to choose the prince over the dragon. Jesus comes and invades sin and death itself and defeats it by his death and resurrection. That's stage one of Jesus' invasion. The second stage is where Revelation picks up. Jesus is coming back to take the city back for good. He wants to defeat the dragon forever. 
He's going to woo back his bride, marry her, and live happily ever after. Again, Revelation is a war book between God and dragon, lamb and beast. It's a war book like the book of Joshua, as I've mentioned earlier. God is taking back the promised land for his people. Revelation is also a war book like the book of Exodus, where God is defeating the evil ruler who has enslaved his people. He demonstrates his power and plagues to allow the room for repentance, but the ruler and the people harden their hearts. God saves his people anyway, because he's more powerful. So Revelation's a war book. It's also a trial book, a book on politics and a romance. Hopefully we can talk through those throughout the summer. But most of the revelation is a description of the prince's invasion of the dragon city. Chapters 1 to 3, Jesus shows up as the commander of the Lord's armies. Chapters 2 and 3, he's actually commanding the armies. Chapters 4 to 16, 1 to 3, 4 to 16, and then the end. 4 to 16 is the biggest chunk of the book. I title that the lamb establishing his rule in creation. This is the invasion itself. First, the lamb reveals that he is worthy to take the scroll and he starts popping open the seals. The scroll is God's salvation plan itself. He has to be the one. He's the only one worthy to open the scroll. And as he does that, then we see the invasion begin. Seven trumpets come after the seven seals are opened. Seven trumpets announce the invasion like trumpets do. You think of Joshua marching around the city. Trumpets are announcing an invasion. And then there's the seven thunders, which John is told not to write about. But thunder in the book of Revelation means something huge is happening. God is on the move. Seals, trumpets, thunders, and then the seven bowls of wrath invade creation and eliminate evil from creation. This is the the scope of the book moves this way until heaven and earth, a new heavens and a new earth descend from heaven and heaven and earth are one in the end of the book. So the cycles of sevens, these sevens take the invasion from plan to completion. Revelation is describing this great invasion. Jesus is taking back his bride, taking back the city and defeating and judging evil. So at the end of the story, the prince defeats the dragon and the beasts once and for all. God in his love and grace eliminates evil. And then the prince marries his beautiful princess. The prince marries his bride, rules with righteousness and justice, sets everything right. All ends happily. Everyone lives happily ever after. So how should this book motivate us? We're going to sing Psalm 2 in just a minute, which is a perfect way to end this service. First, because Adrian wrote the song. And second, because it develops a few of the themes of the book of Revelation. Psalm 2 tells us to take refuge in the Lord, to worship the Lord to submit to the the ruler that the Lord establishes. All the kings of the earth want glory for themselves, but Jesus really is the great king, established by the Lord and the one to whom we must submit ourselves. So, for us, we take refuge in the Lord. Don't take refuge in other rulers, 
other leaders, other ideologies. Don't take refuge in anything except the Lord Jesus himself. So this week, my challenge for us is to look for ways that we are trusting in anything other than Jesus. Find those things and let's submit them to him. When we submit them to him, we give him a chance to reshape us, to remake us. And look for ways, again, I'm using this word faithful witness. Look for ways to be more a faithful witness to him. Are there people to whom you are afraid to tell the truth about God? If so, ask him for courage. Are there people you know you are called to serve, but you haven't done it yet? Ask him for opportunities and for love for those people. Are there places where your life doesn't reflect God's character? Ask the Holy Spirit to reshape you, to lead you to repentance and to make you new. God will reshape us as we turn himself, turn ourselves over to him. He will make us new because that is who he is and that's what he does. He's the creator of life. So Lord, we praise you as creator, as love itself, and as the redeemer of broken lives like ours and of broken worlds like this one. Okay, time to finish the fairy tale. We got to get to the end. And you got to have a blanket on to do it. The prince never stopped loving and seeking his bride. He arrived in the city and wooed back the woman with his sacrifice and care. The dragon captured him, tortured him, and killed him. This made the woman love the prince even more, seeing the evil of the dragon and the love of the prince she had lost. She rejected the dragon and mourned for the prince. The king came and saw that his son was dead. By the power of his love, he brought the prince back to life. The prince stood and judged the dragon in the city. He killed the dragon and sent away all those who continued to follow the dragon. He saw that the woman was ugly and evil, but he still loved her. He saw that she had chosen the dragon, but he still loved her. He saw that she could become his beautiful bride once again. With the creative power of the king and the love of the prince working together, they made the woman beautiful and good again, and they made the city beautiful and good again. They had a majestic wedding. They ruled over a righteous and glorious city, and they all lived happily ever after. Let's pray. Holy God, we give you thanks and praise. You are a mighty, powerful, loving, gracious creator, God. We do not deserve all that you give to us, but we give you thanks and praise. Thank you especially for sending your son to be our prince and king, to woo us back to yourself. Thank you for the power that you displayed by raising Jesus from the dead. Thank you that that same power is available to us by your Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit, we love you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.